Welcome to CTSNet to Go, bringing your discussions about the most relevant topics in cardiothoracic surgery. The Cardiothoracic Surgery Network, known as CTSNet, aims to connect the global cardiothoracic surgical community through communication, collaboration, education, and interaction among cardiothoracic surgeons and their teams across the globe. Learn more at ctsnet.org. My name is Shanda Blackman, and I'm just one of the hosts of CTSNet2Go. In this podcast, you will be exposed to one of the roundtables that will show you what surgeons today are talking about. Welcome to our CTSNet roundtable. This roundtable is part of a COVID-19 series, and today we will be addressing the topic of telemedicine for the cardiothoracic surgeon during the COVID-19 pandemic. My name is Jessica Luke, and I'm a resident editor of CTSNet and cardiovascular surgery resident from the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. I am joined today with some outstanding experts on this topic. Let's begin by getting to know our panel. Can you all please introduce yourselves? My name is Shanda Blackman, and I'm a thoracic surgeon on staff at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. I'm Nehush Mokadam. I'm the Chief of Cardiac Surgery at The Ohio State University in Columbus, Ohio. I'm Mahesh Ramchandani, and I'm a cardiac surgeon at the DeBakey Heart and Vascular Institute in Houston at Houston Methodist Hospital. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us today. The novel coronavirus-19, or COVID-19, was declared a pandemic in March of 2020 and continues to spread across the world. The effect on physicians and other healthcare professionals, as well as hospitals and health systems, are deep and broad. From rescheduled surgeries and routine appointments to an influx of patients to limited availability of certain hospital resources and medical supplies. Given the importance of social distancing, telemedicine, and telecommunication tools are necessarily becoming an <coughs> integral part of our daily lives and how we interact with patients our colleagues and friends. As such, today, we will be discussing the role of telemedicine for the cardiothoracic surgeon during the COVID-19 pandemic, along with some tips and tricks on how to learn, teach, and incorporate it into our daily practice. Dr. Blackman, can you share with us how COVID-19 has affected the way you deliver patient care and the role for telemedicine, what strategies do you use to ensure meaningful interactions occur? Thank you, Jessica. Um, definitely COVID-19 has completely changed the way that we are interacting with our patients. Most of our patient visits during the past two weeks have been virtual visits. And we have continued to keep pace with a very busy clinic by seeing patients with video conferencing. Before COVID-19, we saw almost all of our follow-up patients who were from far out of town as a video visit. So this was something that we had not just piloted, but had already established as a normal part of our practice. So now that COVID-19 has come about, we have started to do these video visits with increasing frequency, but didn't necessarily have to pilot it. Some of the things that have been very helpful have been uh, like the background that you see here. Um, we have a neutral background um, on all of our vid video visits when possible. 
Um, we try to keep them relatively short, um, and we do sometimes share the screen for patients who don't have access to their Mayo Clinic app so they can see results. Um, we also try very hard to um, provide technology. For example, um, I, we are using video conferencing for our patients uh, in the hospital. Um, yesterday, I, had, I made rounds. And every time I went into the room, we would call the family member and do the Mayo Clinic appropriate version of FaceTime uh, with the family member because visitors aren't allowed in the hospital right now. So babies are being born, people are having open heart surgery, people are having esophagectomy and lung cancer resections, and their family members cannot be at the bedside. So they find it really meaningful to have a video visit that's real time as we're making rounds and the family member feels like they're participating. The third way that we've incorporated it is with uh, COVID-19 positive patients. When we go in the room to care for a COVID-19 patient, an expert team is standing outside the door with an iPad and an iPad is mounted in the room so that we can interact with all these people without making them come into the room and be exposed. That's great. So you're able to really still develop, still develop the patient um, interactions that we would normally have, but remotely, and potentially yeah. even being able to democratize that um, modality with patient family members who aren't able to be there at their bedside. That's fantastic, Dr. Blattman. Thank you. And Dr. Ramchandani, the reach of COVID-19 extends beyond patient care to our interactions with our colleagues. Can you share with us about the evolving role of telecommunication tools such as um, social media, teleconference platforms, apps, wearable devices, and communication within our specialty and beyond? Yes, um, thank you, Jessica, for including me on this panel and, uh, and greetings to the other panelists and everybody else who will be watching this. Um, I, I heard it said once, I don't know who said this, that there is a problem with telemedicine and that problem is us um, because um, there have been well-established platforms uh, like uh, uh, WebEx and Zoom and uh, Microsoft Teams for you know, for quite some time now that have been widely available, but they're not used very much. So I think the varieties of ways in which we could use immediately uh, the available platforms that we have uh, to us are things like conferences between institutions. We, for example, have a, uh, have a, a, a Texas-wide vascular conference that we host once every two months that rotates between four different uh, medical institutions across the state. We have a complex aortic conference that we host once every month with uh, institutions outside the state. And these are, these are relatively straightforward to do, and I think that uh, I think their use will, will increase. Uh, the other thing is um, remote proctoring uh, is something which is, is, is a reality and which I think will be used uh, a lot more now. So there are plug and play platforms available, such as Visitor One, which is made by InTouch, but uh, marketed by Storz in this country, and there are others, no doubt. You can buy them or lease them as you want. And the idea of telementoring really has been around in surgery for some time, but it's been restricted to those specialties where you can get a really good view of the field, uh, which primarily restricts you to endoscopic work. It was a really good example of, of uh, that that was done a few years ago, four or five years ago, uh, by Brian Duncan, who used to be over here, 
Uh, he was the president of Sages and he's a general surgeon. He's moved on now, but he successfully uh, tele-mentored uh, um, uh, several surgeons in Southeast Texas on how to do laparoscopic colectomy, um, which, is, uh, which is an interesting you know, way of doing it. So, so it can be done. Um, we recently had the opportunity to be tele-mentored from Emory uh, for a lampoon procedure for a transcatheter mitral valve replacement, and similarly for a, a, a high-risk patient who came in with an aortic dissection and was part of a trial for implantation of an ascending aortic graft. And obviously in those situations, the patient comes in, you don't have time to fly in a proctor, and the tools, most of us have the tools available to do uh, what's necessary. For open surgical cases, I think more of it's going to be done. Good visuals are the key, and learning how to set up scopes and cameras to be able to get the right images that can be beamed out is important. Um, I think rep support is going to be done remotely, increasingly. Reps have been able to do it for a while, but they've been reluctant to do it because they want to be there, they want to have contact with the customer, and there's always a competitive element as well. Um, remote monitoring is something which is a reality now. We've been able to have ECMO monitoring by our perfusionists for some time, but the virtual ICU uh, is something that we at our institution were putting in place uh, actually starting from late last year. Everybody was grumbling about it. You know, it's not going to be a good thing. It's not going to help my patients. Well, guess what? COVID hit us, and all of a sudden, we all think it's a fantastic idea. And... Um, you know, I'd, I'd love to hear what others' experiences are, but it's a, it's a model that basically involves contracting with, in our case, uh, a group of intensivists in New Jersey and uh, with reduced staffing in the ICU over here, uh, but it allows us to, um, it allows us to uh, deliver the care that we need. Uh, we're not able to hire as many intensivists. Uh, there's burnout, there's fewer people going into the specialty. I myself, right now, I'm speaking to you from the intensive care unit. As, as a cardiac surgeon, I've been de-differentiated into an intensivist. Takes me back to my fellowship days, but you have to do what you have to do. Exactly. So I think those are, those are some of the ways, and I believe Nahush will talk about remote education, but if you've got the time, I've got some comments to make about that too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I know that uh, I can comment on, on the virtual ICU aspect. We just rolled out a, a new EMR for our hospital about nine months ago, and there was a lot of grumble as well <laughs> at that time, and it was a very steep learning curve, but now it's, it's a lifesaver. Like you're able to round on your patients from remotely, and then you can call them from your phone into their hospital room so that you can talk with them to see how they're feeling. You're able to put in orders remotely. You're able to check on their vitals remotely. The only thing that we're not able to do right now is telemetry remotely, <laughs> but that's a, a ongoing work in progress. That's awesome. Um, perhaps we could have uh, you comment on the education aspect, Dr. Ramchandani, after Dr. Mokadam comments on that. Does that sure. sound okay? Awesome. And Dr. Mokadam, for COVID-19 has disrupted the traditional educational delivery in person. Can you share with us how you have modified your educational curricula in your program? Furthermore, what role do you see telemedicine would have in your approaches to surgical education when social distancing is no longer required? 
Thank you, Jessica, for uh, inviting me to be part of this uh, panel. Um, these are truly uh, untested times and uh, we're all learning as we go. And I think one of the, the real truths that we all have is that what was true yesterday is not necessarily what's true today um, because of a rapidly changing field. For our, uh, for our trainees, uh, there have been a lot of changes uh, and it's been difficult for them. Uh, to start with, we have um, basically stripped down our clinical services because of our reduction in elective volume. Um, and so we now have um, uh, really skeleton crews making rounds to reduce everybody's exposure. So we fully immerse uh, an attending and uh, our residents in the inpatient care um, while protecting the rest of the team as much as we can uh, a week at a time. Uh, so we still do teaching rounds uh, like that, uh, but as Dr. Blackman mentioned, we are not going in the rooms as much as we used to. We don't bring five people into a room. We try to have interactions from outside the door um, and, uh, and using um, electronic means as Dr. Blackman mentioned as well. For our teaching conferences, uh, obviously we've, uh, we've gone to all um, uh, 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 social media or uh, Zoom meeting type uh, conferences. Uh, these are still led by a faculty member. Uh, all of our residents do participate in them. Um, I think a couple of things that are really important uh, for these types of conferences to maintain them uh, to be interactive is, first of all, um, everybody needs to turn their camera on. Um, uh, we, need, we need to see each other's faces. We need to see each other smile. We need to see each other frown. Uh, we need to see each other be confused when we're discussing cases. So uh, I, I really think it's important to turn your camera on, even if uh, uh, you're having a bad hair day. Um, you know, the nice thing is that uh, with these uh, backgrounds, as you see, uh, you could be living uh, in a mess and uh, nobody would ever know. Um, <laughs> I think the other aspect that's really important in these teaching conferences is that uh, have a platform where everybody has the ability to share their screen. Um, because there are many times when one person has an idea that they want to present, and I've been on conference calls where uh, I've had difficulty with one person wanting to share their screen. So I think the ability for everybody to share their screen from time to time is an important aspect of education. Uh, in the last few weeks, we've started a new conference. Um, uh, and that's uh, sort of uh, a case conference that uh, talks about the cases coming up in the week uh, and uh, follow up from what happened last week. Um, because we have uh, individuals sequestered away from the hospital from time to time, uh, again, to protect them and to prevent everybody from getting ill at the same time, um, uh, everybody can't benefit from the clinical experience that's happening. Uh, and so, like I said, we're having new case conferences. Um, I think moving forward, you're asking how this is going to affect education in the future. I think we're going to be liberated. I think Dr. Ramchandani is absolutely correct. This has been around for a long time and we in medicine have resisted it. Actually, businesses figured this out a long time ago. Uh, they've been doing virtual meetings forever and uh, for whatever reason, uh, we were late to the game. Uh, I think this will have an effect on um, conferences, uh, as all, has all, already been mentioned. Uh, our national conferences, uh, the AATS coming up is going to have a virtual meeting. Um, and uh, that's never been done before, uh, as far as I know. Um, I think the real uh, leap that we, we could potentially take here is to have a true national curriculum. Um, if 
for the residents because right now everybody has their own curriculum. Some people follow the STS national curriculum. Some people follow it in a two-year cycle. Some people follow it in a three-year cycle. With telemedicine and with these types of platforms, we could truly have a national curriculum, which has been the, the holy grail that we've been unable to uh, accomplish to date. So uh, I look forward to that. Uh, I look forward to other people's comments and pers perspectives as well. Thank you so much, Dr. Mokadam. Does everyone else have any thoughts on education and telemedicine? Yeah, I'd like to mention a couple of things. Um, you know, uh, Shanda is well aware of the fact that um, at, at our institution at Houston Methodist, you know, we've been uh, we, we, we live stream, record, and archive every single educational event that takes place. So right now on our, on our uh, YouTube channel, which is Jebeki CV Education, we've got 1,700 videos that are all uh, listed under topics, and you can search the playlists and find, you know, whatever you want. It's obviously all heart center related, so it's, so it's, so it's cardiac surgery, cardiology, and, uh, and, uh, and vascular surgery mostly, and there is some uh, thoracic surgery as well. Um, so I think that's something that really um, everybody that has the capabilities could do and should do. I, I, I think Dr. Mokadam's um, um, uh, suggestion or wish, I would say, for a national curriculum is absolutely brilliant because what we're going to find now is that a lot of resident education is going to is going to be taking place via these online platforms, either with live streamed uh, uh, talks that could come from Mayo, that could come from uh, Ohio State or anywhere really, so that you could find the expert in a particular topic and have them speak directly to all the cardiothoracic residents in this country. Uh, and if they couldn't attend at the same time, it would be archived, it would be part of their curriculum that they would have to watch it at a certain point and they'd be tested on it. So there's all sorts of ways that you can do this and we have an opportunity, I think, to collaborate in doing that. Uh, the other thing is, uh, I predict that in the future, there's going to be a much bigger role for live streaming of cases from the operating room for resident education purposes, where again, if somebody is doing, you know, if, um, uh, you know, if um, somebody, for example, is doing a particular procedure, let's say a septal myectomy at the, at the, uh, at the Mayo Clinic, you know, and um, uh, th this is something that could be live streamed so that everybody could really benefit from watching uh, not just the edited video that would, that I think, uh, well, is online, but observing the nuances of a real-time procedure, because as we all know, that's, you know, it's, it all boils down to the details. The devil is in the details. The other thing that we're doing now is we are working on developing methods methods for remote hands-on teaching for residents. Now, this is very much a process in development, but for example, uh, if you want to teach them how to do anastomosis, this is all pretty basic at the moment. And I think if others join in this effort, um, uh, 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 this field can be advanced, but the idea would be to construct relatively simple kits that you could ship out to the students whoever they may be, and using an online platform, you could walk them through um, and measure their performance on performing a vascular anastomosis, for example. So these are just some ideas that we're throwing about right now. <clears throat> Thank you very much, Dr. Ramchandani. Certainly it's a very uh, unprecedented time, challenging time, but also a very exciting time for innovation and 
different ways of delivering medicine and educating our trainees. Um, I, Jessica, may I ask a question of Dr. Mukadam and Dr. Blackman? Um, I, I wonder, uh, regarding virtual patient visits, um, there's a couple of things, obviously, that, well, that I've encountered and I'm sure you have. Number one, obviously, is the inability to do a physical examination. Uh, there's no question that patients are happier that they don't have to drive and find a parking spot and see you. But I think that's a deficiency that um, we have to think about. The other is we're still encountering problems with our elderly patients when it comes to connecting at the other end. And uh, I think that will probably get resolved as the platforms get simpler and easier to use. Now, Hesh, well, I can comment on that. Uh, they now have electronic stethoscopes that you can send ahead and the patient can hold to their chest and you can actually do a cardiac exam. Um, having patients get some minor procedures and evaluations done locally and then you uh, video visiting and conferencing with the patient after some rudimentary exam has taken place is also possible. So I think with the advent of electronic stethoscopes, and other means of evaluating a patient more creatively. Uh, I, I personally think that when we're evaluating someone for fitness or surgery, having uh, Fitbit information on them might be a lot more telling than just a five minute pulmonary function test. Yes, um, great idea. So I, I think that there's no turning back. Uh, certainly the technology has pushed us to innovate a little bit faster than we normally would have, but um, some of these things that I've mentioned are probably going to become a lot more accessible because of this. One of the challenges that we've experienced in our patients is not everybody has a webcam or even a phone with a camera on it. Uh, and so for those patients, we're doing true telemedicine, not video conferencing. Uh, and, and then there is, of course, also the uh, group of patients who are uh, technologically not as savvy as others and have difficulty in even establishing the connection. I, I agree with time, this is going to get better, easier, more routine. And uh, I think as health systems will be better equipped to educate and facilitate this for our patients. If you look in China, they have every person assigned a QR code to track them. I I don't know how much the patients in the United States want to be tracked and, and coded, but if everyone had a mobile phone that attached to a Fitbit and we were able to track movements and communication of diseases and monitor patients a little bit better, it certainly would make uh, some of these monitoring and databases better and more informed and enhanced. And then of course there are security issues as well. Yeah, those are some great points, everyone. I had recently had an experience with a patient who had this wearable app that they were able to generate 12 lead ECGs for themselves. And they were able to send it to their own phone and then actually show, like, uh, send it as a photo to us to see. So that was, that was pretty cool to be able to generate a 12 lead ECG from home. Um, and Opening it up to the panel, any closing thoughts to the cardiothoracic surgery community on the topic of telemedicine during COVID-19 and beyond? Well, Jessica, I'd like to ask you a question about social media and wearables, because I think that you're much more savvy and can probably see the possibilities more clearly than certainly I can. What, do you, what role do you think uh, that might have to play? I think um, social media has 
a huge role to play both positive and negative during the COVID-19 pandemic, as we can see, like comparing it back to the days of the Spanish flu, for example, in 1918, there were no um, ways like social media to be able to communicate so rapidly to everyone across the globe. Whereas now we're able to do that with just a flick of our finger and typing in a couple characters on Twitter, for example. Um, I think that social media has the benefit of being able to democratize information, allow everyone a seat at the table to voice their concerns, their thoughts, um, as well as to share information, which has been vital for COVID-19. For example, um, being able to sequence the virus very rapidly and then share it to everyone else across the globe to collaborate on developing drugs and therapies for COVID-19 is fantastic, um, as well as the role of preprints um, and rapid access and open access publications on COVID-19 has been a huge way of how our colleagues and other physicians and members of the public are able to become engaged and educated on this disease and its rapidly evolving uh, developments. However, it also has its drawbacks in terms of the amount of misinformation being presented and spread about COVID-19. For example, the untouted um, and unsupported uh, touting of hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin and its benefit in COVID-19, which has not been demonstrated, for example, uh, is an example of misinformation being spread, which has led to patients taking this medication and developing complications from it because they were not recommended by physicians and not supervised. So I think that as with everything, there are benefits as well as drawbacks. But I think that if used properly, social media can truly revolutionize how information is communicated and foster collaboration across the globe in our joint effort to combat this disease together. Thank you. Beautifully said. Um. Any other closing thoughts, everyone? When I grow up, I'm going to be as eloquent as you are, Jessica. Thank you very much for your kind words, Dr. Ramchandani. Thank you, Jessica. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Well, thanks so much for joining us all for this CTSNet roundtable. It's been truly an honor to have you all, and it has been very informative and enlightening for me, and I hope that um, our audience would agree with us as well. Make sure to check out all the other fantastic resources relating to COVID-19 on the CTS Net webpage. And stay well, stay safe, and we look forward to seeing you all again soon. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to CTS Net to Go, your resource for podcasts focusing on cardiothoracic surgery. Find more discussions as well as surgical videos and other cardiothoracic surgery resources at ctsnet.org. You can also keep up with CTSNet by subscribing to the YouTube channel at CTSNet Video, by following at CTSNet Org on Twitter, 
or by liking CTS Net's page on Facebook. I'm Shanda Blackman. Thank you for joining us on this latest episode of CTS Net to Go. Have a great day.